Hello and welcome to On the Horizon with Glenn and Henry, a monthly podcast dedicated to helping you navigate through the tricking world of golf course maintenance. I'm Henry Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. Whether it's establishing growth in spring, hand watering in the summer, or warming your hands on an exhaust pipe in the winter, we'll be here to see you right. So, Glenn, what is this podcast all about? Well, myself and Henry tried to spend our time talking and thinking about preventative measures and strategies in the turf grass industry. But it's generally pretty clear from our customers that they find it difficult to get out of their kind of curative mentality. I regularly get phone calls saying, Glenn, I've got a problem now. What should I do? I rarely get phone calls saying we're entering into a period of disease and stress. What strategy should I put in place to reduce the pressure? And I think that's what we're trying to look at here, Henry. We're trying to look a little further forward at what's on the horizon and discuss what measures can we put in place in the upcoming weeks to prevent or at least mitigate the impact of all those agronomic problems and challenges that are just waiting to trip you up. The upcoming two to six weeks is a really important period to think about, but I don't think we give it its full attention. I know when I was a course manager, I knew I was on my game when I was looking two weeks ahead. When I had a two-week plan, I knew that's when I was on the ball. But more often than not, though, I was looking at the here and the now. I was thinking about the bins that haven't been emptied or the weekend lad who didn't turn up or managing someone who wanted a day's holiday when I already had other people off and loads of work to do. My focus wasn't agronomics. My focus was always the management of the golf course. And after all, that is the golf course manager's role. But in this podcast, what we're going to try and look at is that medium term period. Course managers do a great job about thinking now, but the very best course managers are thinking five to six weeks down the line. Now, agronomists are really useful in this whole equation as well. But for my money, they tend to think a little too far down the line. They're 12 months ahead which to my mind is just too far to deal with these kind of short-term problems. Now, Henry, you were one of those agronomists. How do you plead? Ah, yes, Glenn. Guilty as charged, I'm afraid. Yes, as an agronomist, I felt my job was to go in and assess the situation, discuss the course management and the playing qualities, and uh, then reflect and write down the agronomic plan for everyone. But quite often, I was thinking on the far horizon. We were sometimes looking six to 12 months ahead and almost dealing with scheduling issues um, to be able to complete the plan. Um, the immediate two to six week on the horizon period wasn't really my focus of attention. And and by the time the report arrived, the, the situation might have changed and the course might have even been well into that danger period when potentially serious agronomic issues might have already begun to surface. And so a lot of the things in the report just wouldn't apply because the situation had changed. I really wish that someone had invented an agronomist crystal ball. So, so yeah, as a course manager, you struggle to look onto the horizon period. And as agronomists, we were looking well beyond that two to six week period ahead. And, and both of us know that this is the time when potentially big 
agronomic problems, be it pests, diseases, maybe turf stress, they all emerge in the near future, the period that's on the horizon, I suppose. And so the whole point of this podcast is to discuss this upcoming danger period that is just on the horizon to help everyone make better plans. We're certainly not wanting to talk about greenkeeping as a whole, though, Glenn, are we? No, I think that's right, Henry. I think it's really important you and I recognise our strengths here. And we're not going to be really talking about the greenkeeping industry and machinery that's changing or the pressures that are out there in the wider community. We're not really going to talk about putting surfaces per se um, and how to improve them. We're not here to be talking about whether you should be dropping cutting heights or engaging groomers. But we will be talking about pests such as leather jackets, chafers, whatever that relevant disease for the period is. That may be fuzz, anthracnose, and we'll be talking stresses as well, light, heat, cold. And some of the stresses we'll be talking about are the ones that you're imparting. Some of those cultural practices that you put in place, like top dressing or verticutting, they'll slip into the conversation. Not only are they part of the solution, but they're part of the challenge. So... In this podcast, one minute we might be talking about the extreme temperatures that July could throw at you. The next minute we might be talking about the stresses that a club championship could impose because we're having to drop cutting heights to speed up greens because that's what's being demanded of you at the moment. But it's going to be from that angle rather than an angle of how can we create better surfaces this month. We'll help you get better surfaces by avoiding the problems, by thinking a little bit further ahead. Yeah, we're focusing on integrated turf management strategies, I suppose, aren't we? Um, How things fit around the day-to-day management of the golf course to prevent big agronomic issues from happening. Um, We're both quite lucky, aren't we, in, in our current job roles as Uh, technology specialists. I mean, you have great insights when it comes to fungicide, surfactants, increasingly um, biological technologies, whereas my role encompasses all those things, plus plant nutrition and the use of biostimulants. So hopefully we'll be able to help people with some good advice when it comes to the use of those kind of technologies and discuss some ideas that could be incorporated into um, people's ITM plans. So, Glenn, how is the podcast going to work? So the plan is to imagine ourselves in the near future each month to discuss and get you thinking about that period in front of us, that two to six week period of what's on the horizon. We're going to look at climatic challenges. We're going to look at the typical diseases we get at those periods of the year. We're going to look for the drivers of those problems. And we're going to try and look at it from a couple of different perspectives as well. Henry, you're up there in Yorkshire, which isn't always the most tropical environment that you'll experience. And I'm down on the south coast where the sun does nothing other than shine. Now, we know there's everywhere in between those and indeed more extreme. So we're going to be talking about things from those two perspectives primarily because myself and Henry are living and breathing these challenges and understanding it. And hopefully you can pick that apart a little bit and just see where you fit into the spectrum between the two extremes that we are talking about. Yes, and beyond, I suppose, um, because the the weather across 
the UK and Ireland is so different, isn't it? And that often gets glossed over when we're talking about the timing and nature of management plans. Um, you know, the agronomic conditions do vary. And so that's going to be really interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to delving deeper into that. Um, but we should say that we have an ultimate aim here, shouldn't we? The purpose of this podcast is to help greenkeepers and course managers to draw up management plans, uh, what, or what we might call an agronomic game plan. Uh, that looks slightly further ahead than we currently tend to onto that immediate horizon um, in order to help us anticipate and ultimately prevent problems from arising and hopefully allowing us to seamlessly navigate through the playing season without you, Glenn, getting too many of those emergency phone calls. Um, so we're hoping to have some interesting and uh, forward-looking discussions that hopefully everyone will find both enjoyable and helpful. Okay, Glenn, so in this edition, we're talking about May, which is certainly a tricking month uh, with the onset of uh, potentially stressful conditions and sometimes unrealistic golfer expectation. Um, there's plenty of challenges lurking on the horizon at this time. So, Glenn, let's take a look and see what we are to expect from May. Our setup is that we're looking at how the climatic conditions can vary in our different locations that are actually not that far apart when you think about it. Uh, you're based down in Winchester in Hampshire in the south of England, and I'm up here in Ilkley uh, in Yorkshire. And we're going to start by taking a look at the monthly weather patterns that we each experience. Um, so, Glenn, in terms of the weather, what is May all about for each of us? May is a, a good month, Henry. We've got some really interesting variations across the month and the regions. So I'm going to start with a bit of rainfall to look at. So your driest year up there in Yorkshire was 2020 during lockdown last year, Henry. And you only saw six millimetres of rain during May last year. But if we compare that to your extreme, your wettest May you've experienced was 2014 and you had 102 millimetres of rain in that month. Now, they're the extremes. On average, you're averaging around 48 millimetres of rain in May. If we move down to the south coast here, we too enjoyed our driest year in 2020 where we had zero millimetres. We had no rainfall at all in May. A very dry May, and it certainly felt like that too, sat in the garden enjoying a few pina coladas, knowing that the whole world had stopped. Uh, little did we know what the next 12 months had in store. Um, our wettest year was also 2014, where we saw 78 millimetres of rain. So there's some differences there in our extremes. Um, and our average down here is 44 millimetres a year. So the averages, Henry, pretty similar across those two areas. Yeah, those rainfall figures are... Uh surprisingly similar for both of us no massive differences going on uh, last year in particular was extremely dry for both of us 
uh, but May can also be a wet month, can't it? So we need to be prepared for all eventualities. Okay, so what about the ET or evapotranspiration rates? Uh, what are the potential moisture losses that we might experience during May? Well, Henry, ET is a figure that's used to measure a loss of moisture. The E stands for evaporation and the T stands for transpiration. Put them together and you've got evapotranspiration. Really useful figure to keep an eye on as it gives you a strong steer as to how much irrigation you'll need to put down on those surfaces, or even just an indication of how much you're drying out. And we got some interesting figures here. 74 mil was your least amount lost in 2013. And the most you lost was 96 mil in 2018, with an average loss during May of 83 millimeters. So the extremes there, nowhere near as wide as your rainfall. What's interesting for me here, Henry, is we're losing about twice as much moisture through ET on average as we're bringing in rainfall on average. And there's not a big difference between you and me here. I was expecting more than that. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it, just to look at these figures. Um, um, and I think it's clear that uh, May is the time when uh, a change of emphasis occurs for the first time in the year. Uh, and we can start routinely... Uh, experiencing periods of significant net moisture deficits, which potentially could start placing significant agronomic pressures on the turf. Um, so this is something to keep an eye out for, certainly on the horizon, isn't it, Glenn? Yeah, you're right. Even in the lowest ET years down on the south coast of 65 mil, and if you were to combine that with your wettest year at 78 that's a hypervertical month, but even in those extremes, we're very, very close to May drying out. Even in the wettest years, May is going to be dry. You are going to come out of May drier than you went in. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. There is no situation where you're going to be wetter coming out of May than you went into it. It's highly likely you're going to be a lot drier. Yeah, absolutely. That is true. Um, okay, uh, let's uh, think a bit more broadly with those kind of climatic figures. What about the potential temperatures uh, for both of us during May? What should we expect? Well, maximum temperatures for both areas here. The highest you've hit was 2017, and you hit 24 degrees in May there. We hit 27 degrees in 2010. But these are extremes, and we can see extremes all year round. Interesting, we've just gone through a record march where we saw a hot record high there. Uh, the interesting thing for me is the average high temperature uh, your average high temperature through May is around 15 degrees, whereas our average high temperature is 17 degrees. Now, that's averaged out over the whole month. So on average, every day, I am two degrees warmer than you at our high temperature. Yes, um, this is where the differences are starting to show. And um, they really show over the course of a month um, when they can sort of play themselves out cumulatively um, and result in some significant differences in terms of the potential for growth. At this time of year, I think, you know, you can be two to three weeks ahead of us. Um, up in Yorkshire, and it, and the the differences will be wider in different 
places further north. Interestingly, the maximum temperatures in Yorkshire at this time of year aren't that problematic. You know, 24 degrees as the all-time high for the last 10 years. But those the 27 degrees that you experienced in 2010, that would have been really stressful for the turf um, really early in the playing season, um, depending on how long that hot spell lasted. So May is that time when certain parts of the UK and Ireland uh, might now potentially be entering into some significant and real environmental stresses. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's combined with some pretty low, low temperatures as well, Henry. In 2012, you were still seeing minus figures, minus two for you in 2012. Whereas we saw our coldest day in 2020. Interestingly, last year, while I was sat in the garden with my pina coladas, um, last year, lockdown we experienced a temperature of minus four degrees down here. So we still see this low end temperature stress as well as the high end temperature stress going on at the same time. Interesting to see for the second month that my coldest temperature is colder than yours. I saw that in the figures that we pulled out when we had a trial run of this last year. That, again, is not what I was expecting. Yes. Yeah, it really is a time of potential extremes, May, isn't it? And... Again, we really don't know uh, what is coming over that horizon, what extreme is waiting for us. And so we need to be prepared um, for each eventuality um, coming up in the next four to six weeks and be able to navigate a path through whatever comes our way without the surfaces suffering unduly yeah and whilst those extremes of low temperature the averages are quite nice in may so your averages overnight temperature up there for you henry is around five degrees through may and our overnight temperature is six degrees so that kind of low temperature on average for us sits at six and yours is sitting around five so we're moving into some decent growing temperatures if we get an average may but we've still got that definite potential to be dropping out of growth situations on occasions through this month still. Yeah, it's not plain sailing, is it, through May? There might be those um, drop in temperatures that, that hold back the, the sort of uh, consistent growth patterns um, that, you, that you need, really, to sort of continue that process of preparing the surfaces for play. Okay, look, talking about growth, what are the sunshine um, levels that we could expect during May? Okay, so what I've done here is I've pulled out some average sunlight or sunshine hours and averaged it out across the whole month. So I've taken the total number of sunshine hours and divided it by the number of days. So it's pretty pretty crude, but it's a useful figure. Um on average, we're both seeing about six and a half hours of sunlight or sunshine hours through May. But there are some extremes, of course. So in 2014, you were only seeing about three and three quarters hour of sunshine a day. So a pretty cloudy, overcast year, 2014, which was incidentally the same year as your highest rainfall. Mm. But 2020, last year, you were seeing on average over 10 hours of sunshine per day, which is very similar to our experience down here on the South Coast as well. 
Um, so that was our best sunshine year ever, 2020, uh, around 10 hours on average. Yeah, it was a strange time, wasn't it? Uh, I, I would have been sitting in the garden drinking tea, but the, it was an amazing um, amazing month climatically last year, definitely, and, and highly enjoyable. Okay, but, you know, at this time, this, I, the significant aspect of the sunshine, uh, I suppose, is the increasing intensity of it as the sun gets higher in the sky. Um, and when the sun comes out, it will feel really warm. Um, is there a danger for light stress to occur at this time as uh, UV levels increase? Yeah, we do have potential to see a lot of sunshine through May, and it can be coupled with some extreme heat. We've seen that already. So there will be times where we're under some pretty significant light stress, heat stress, and drought stress. But I think the thing that kind of gets us out of trouble more often than not through May is the overnight temperatures tend to drop off, and we don't really see any warm overnight temperatures. So on a daily basis, you're going to get a bit of respite from those stresses. Okay. Yes, good point. Uh, all right. So in terms of adding all these climatic elements together into a sort of uh, index for grass growth, uh, what are the accumulated uh, growth degree day totals for each of us, mate? What I've done here, Henry, is I've taken a growth degree day figure from the Greencast GDD calculator, which you can find on the Greencast website. And I've used a base temperature of six degrees to work out the growth degree days for May. Now, when you use a base temperature of six degrees, it gives us a really good indication of how much grass growth we're expecting to get. Um, the base temperature is really simple. It is the number you take away from the average temperature. So if your average temperature is seven degrees for the day, you take away the six giving you one growth degree day. So it's not a complicated equation but gets a bit confused sometimes. Um, the reason six works so well for cool season grasses is because six is generally that temperature that cool seasons start growing at. So using that equation, um, on average down here on the South Coast, we're seeing around 200 growth degree days in May. And on average up there in Yorkshire, you're seeing around 144. Now, obviously, there's extremes and variations, and the lowest figure you've experienced in the last decade was 91, and the best growing month you've had was 199. So your best month you've had in the last decade was the same as our average, Henry. Whereas we've seen the worst growth year here in 2013 of 156. Um, so our 156, our worst year was around your average, and our best year was 255 in 2018, so significantly more. And it's a useful figure to understand how much growth we could potentially see uh, and we can expect. And comparing it to July is a really useful comparison for me because that's our peak growth month. It's our period where we've got the longest days, longest period of temperature. There may be other stresses stopping grass growth, but from a temperature point of view, that's our peak. Now, in July, we can see around 400 growth degree days on the south coast. So even in our average year, we are only experiencing about 50% of the potential growth we would get in our peak month. So we're still a long way 
away from optimum growth conditions. That is so interesting, isn't it? Um, um, that we're sort of still running, uh, sort of uh, running light in terms of the growth because we're, we're trying to do so much work during this time. Um, I don't think I ever really appreciated that, really. Um, and also, there's some big differences going on, isn't there, between me and you. Um, at this time of year, I would expect the courses up in the north of England to be maybe a couple of weeks behind, as I was saying before, where, where you are or the courses are down in the south of England. And these differences will be even greater as we go further north or even further west, over to the west coast of Ireland. So we're still not at sort of optimal functioning yet. But the, the accumulated sort of growth degree day con- concept is also sort of widely used or applied in practice to help dis- determine the frequency of um, Primo Max uh, plant growth regulator applications. And so if we were using the accumulation of 200 growth degree days as a guide, I would be getting um, a month out of my Primo applications at this time, whereas down south, you would only be getting three weeks because it would be being metabolized quicker for you. Now, I do know that uh, I do know a few Yorkshiremen who will be smiling at that just to reinforce some regional stereotyping. Um, But this does show that the difference between our locations is real and significant, not only in terms of the onset of growth and how how much further forward you might be, but also with the uh, use and application of important technologies such as plant growth regulators. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, just referencing the growth degree day model, that zero degree base temperature is a much better model for longevity of product. It's, and it's really easy to look that up on the Greencast website. Um, 200 growth degree days is a really nice primo interval to go at on a base temperature of zero. And you're right, I, I pulled the figures out last night just to check. And an average May for you is exactly four and a half weeks, Henry, spot on. And an average May for us is three weeks. But if you get a warm one, it's going to be a shorter period of time. And if you get a longer one, you're going to get more longevity out of it. That's the beauty of a growth degree day model. Yes, absolutely. Um, So you won't be getting um, all those phone calls about uh, the longevity of Primo Max from now on, Glenn. All right. So look, anyway, uh, in terms of summarising, May, uh, I think it's clear that this is potentially an extremely challenging month uh, when pretty much anything could happen. It could be extremely wet. It could be extremely dry. It could be genuinely hot, especially with you down south. Um, But there could also be significant frosts. Uh, It could be bright and cheerful or dull and depressing. (sighs) Uh, we could get good growth or we could really struggle to keep things moving. So this is a really challenging time for course managers who are already full on trying to transition or, or finish off the course preparations through to its summer conditions and have it ready very much during this time Uh, And so in terms of keeping an eye on what's coming or trying to plan for all outcomes, May can be 
like the most difficult time. Now, does that ring true for you, Glenn, remembering back to your days as a course manager? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, thinking back to that experience and looking at these figures through a fresh set of eyes, seems to me there's only one thing that is guaranteed for May, uh, and that's unless we have an absolute freak year, we're going to come out of May significantly drier than when we went into it. Yes, absolutely. You're listening to On The Horizon, the monthly ITM podcast with Glenn and Henry. So we now know that there are significant challenges waiting for us on the May horizon. But what is May all about for the course? Yeah, it's not actually that easy a month. Um, The expectations are on the up. Uh, golf is now in full flow. You've got some really long days for people to play golf in. In fact, we're sneaking up to the longest day of the year here. It's only 21 days into next month, and that's the longest day. How has that snuck up on us already? Big events going on, club competitions, probably club championship in there somewhere. We've got the second major of the year in May, which is the PGA Championship uh, this year at Kiowa Island, starting on the 20th. So we're well into the golfing season. And yet we're still only at really 50% of our maximum growth potential. So it's definitely not the easiest month. You you can get some really good maze where everything breaks in your favor and you can get some really tough maze. But rarely do we get a May without some sort of stress. So thinking about that, Henry, what sort of conditions and limiting factors do you think we're going to go through this month? Get that agronomic crystal ball out. (laughs) Yes, as we mentioned, when discussing the sort of potential weather for each of our location. Uh, There are some real challenges ahead. Uh, Those temperatures and rainfall extremes could create constraints to growth uh, at a time when we really need it to assist with those course preparations. Um, It could still be an intermittent stop-start sort of time, um, which is a problem especially because the players' expectations are reaching a frenzied peak uh, during this month as well. We've got light on our side, hopefully, uh, which is good, uh, with the days lengthening towards their maximum. Thanks for that depressing mention of how close the longest day is. And um, hopefully the light levels won't become a limiting factor. But... Um, they can start to become stressful. Yeah, I heard this mentioned a few times, Henry, and I know I talk about it quite a lot, but how is light stressful? What do you mean by that? Days getting longer, surely that's a good thing. Most course managers and golfers I speak to are really positive we have longer days. It's good news, isn't it? Yes, Glenn, yes. Um, but our, our sort of understanding has has slightly shifted in recent years when we've started thinking about light levels a bit more closely. Uh, Firstly, we know that light is crucial for plant growth. Um, But in the past, maybe we haven't fully appreciated that there is an optimal level of light for uh, fully effective plant functioning, I suppose, and that too much light can be problematic. possibly could result in uh, sort of plant stress effects or plants sort of reacting sort of negatively against too much or too intensive light. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think that the turning point for me was when I read and understand this optimum range for light concepts, which I don't know why I was surprised by it, because we have a an optimum range or a Goldilocks for nutrition. You can have too little, too much. You have an optimum range for water. You can be too dry or you can be too wet. Why would there not be an optimum range for light? And um, yeah, there's kind of a peak point when plants can photosynthesize and then they just absorb no further light. And that's the end of it. And you're right that there's a bigger awareness of that now that this peak point of light, we reach it earlier than I think we thought we did. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. And, and of course, sort of May is a sort of time of change. And, and the start of May can be very different than the end of May. And it's like we mentioned before, it's only a time when anything can happen, which might result in constraints to growth for significant periods. Or when the establishment of the ongoing establishment of strong growth could be held back at a time when the surface preparations are probably going to be at their peak. So May is a really important time for preparing the goal course, but conditions might not be totally in our favor. And also, we might be adding to the problems, might we? You know, Glenn, what are the sort of management stresses that greenkeepers uh, will be imposing on the, the course during May? Yeah, we've already mentioned the expectation that course managers will have put on them through May because golf is well and truly up and running, but we are still in a period of quite intermittent growth. And ironically, the more intermittent the growth is, the harder we have to work a surface to get the putting surface that's being demanded of us. Um, we're, we're most likely in May to be in daily operations on greens now, regardless of weather conditions. It would be pretty unusual to have a day in May when you're not doing something to those surfaces. And actually, the more variable that growth is, the more we tend to do. So if it's cool and the grass isn't growing particularly, the harder you have to work it to get those surfaces. And it's not really best practice for plant health. Although it's probably what we're doing to get a putting surface. It can be almost like a perfect storm going on during May, can't it? The potential for um, environmental stress and a certainty that we'll be uh, inflicting management stress. And they're, they're, they're all sort of pulling against each other. And that's not going to end well, is it? It feels like we haven't yet started the year properly. And May is a time when we're in danger of causing significant or long-lasting damage to the turf if we're not careful. I think it was something I really underestimated when I was a course manager. Um, I I would push things pretty hard in May. I could get some great surfaces in May if I kept working those greens. We weren't taking loads of grass off. If I kept working them, double-cutting, brushing, the members loved me. But I think I really underestimated the damage I was doing to the plant to get those surfaces and the knock-on effect further down the line of that. You know, with my agronomist hat on i do think we have to consider the balancing of management stress and environmental stresses rather than just carrying on regardless if environmental stresses such as high or low temperatures or even intensities of light or drought stress occur we should be 
possibly considering being more yeah, considerate with our management stresses. Because if we don't, uh, if we just carry on regardless, then the plant health will will suffer directly or indirectly, I suppose, with the development of subsequent disease immediately or, or even at a later date. Yeah, you're right. My birthday, Henry, is on the 1st of June, so take note. Obviously not in May, but it's a nice story that relates here. And any chance I get to relate my birthday or mention my birthday, I'm going to take. And 1st of June is kind of almost May, isn't it? So I remember regularly taking a photo of the temperature gauge in my car on the 1st of June. I remember pulling up at work and just kind of sitting there waiting to go into the yard and just taking a photo of it. And it regularly, I've got, if I look back through Twitter, which I've been on for 10 years now, Henry, which is pretty frightening. There's probably six or seven photos on the 1st of June of a minus temperature on my car. Now, I did that and because it was interesting. It was rare that that frost ever interrupted golf. And I always knew that if I had that frost on my birthday, then I was going to have a cracking day. It meant we'd have blue skies. It'd probably be gorgeous, decent temperatures in the afternoon. Probably meant a pub garden or a barbecue in the evening. And it just wasn't unusual to still see a frost on the 1st of June. Golfers rarely saw that frost. But it wasn't unusual. Now, if it's not unusual to see it on the 1st of June, it is very, very feasible to see that all the way through May. So those cold periods, that intermittent growth coupled with high expectations is a combination that presents some real challenges for May. Yeah, yeah. The challenge of trying to make progress or create perfection uh, when the sort of environmental conditions might not be ideal. And that associated risk of doing more harm than good as a result. Well, that's why we're looking onto the horizon, Glenn, you know, in, in order to try and set plans in place that um, appreciate this challenge and are able to uh, make adjustments depending on how conditions are playing out. At this point, uh, you know, as an agronomist, I did attempt this on a few occasions. We might, you know, attempt messaging the golfers and trying to sort of set a reasonable level of expectation for them when we're going through this difficult time. But uh, my experience is that player demands tend to be dominated by uh, a, a minority of members who don't really accept reasonable expl explanations. I always wished that the contented, silent majority would have more of a voice. And to help the course manager make better agronomic decisions more than anything, else. Uh, but let's not get into that particular minefield today. But suffice it to say, there are a lot of stresses all around the golf course during May. As we move into May, what are those agronomic risks that May is going to present? Um, do you think we're going to see any fuzz, any fusarium, any microdokium patch? Is that on the horizon? Um, well, of course, if the conditions are conducive to an attack, then it will happen. Cool and damp, etc. 
but generally, at this time of year, the risk of damaging microdochium patch disease activity is actually quite low. And if there is any, it does tend to grow out very quickly. We may see some small spikes of activity at this time that don't really develop, um, that go as quickly as they come. So I would say that the risk of microdochium patch causing significant damage at this time of year is generally low. Okay. So we may see some, and if we did see some, would you recommend people treated it or just let it grow out? Have you got any advice for those people that are likely to spot some through this month? Well, um, we always have to judge each situation on its own merits. Generally, we wouldn't think that fungicidal applications would be needed, but in uh, sheltered, um, shaded and damp environments, which can affect, you know, isolated greens here and there, uh, where recovery might be slow and the risk might be high, then you may need to reach for uh, localized fungicide treatments. But in general, if we maintain fertility and we are able to keep growth moving and keep up with our good cultural practice, due removal, etc., then generally... Uh, a fungicide application would not be required. Yeah, if I think back to my career, the the only times I think I really remember treating for fuzz in May was as a preventative measure if I ever had early spring televised tournaments. But I don't think I ever treated through May outside of those kind of extreme situations where we were working surfaces ridiculously hard. I, I think I saw it occasionally, and unless there was kind of... I was putting things under really high stress and pushing things really hard or the stakes were very high, like being on television or having a European tour event, then I'd probably avoid it too. Yeah, quite right. And, um, you know, we, we should always say that each situation should be judged on its own merits, you know, especially when um, unusual weather patterns seem to be the norm these days. But yeah, but generally, I think you're right. So what about some of the other diseases? What about anthracnose? Do you think we're likely to see any of that in May? Oh, well, again, Generally not. You can see why I was an agronomist. Um, Very, very liberal with the term generally. But we can't discount it. There may be some carryover um, from winter activity if conditions are wet and the turf is in a weakened state. Uh, We might see some basal rot, uh, especially if fertility is low, coupled with those poor drainage or, or, or wet weather conditions. But by the same token, actually, Glenn, if we think about it, uh, if you down in Hampshire experience some of those extremely high temperatures coupled with high humidity or leaf moisture, you might see some foliar blight. But both these occurrences would be very unusual at this time of year. But that doesn't mean that we disregard anthracnose at this time. And and I think this is the important point, really, because the the origin of anthracnose disease outbreaks later on in the year can begin at this time. If we put the sward under too much stress or pressure at this time, 
as is the natural temptation or the, the general requirement, as we've already discussed, then we might be making for some significant problems in this area at a later date. So really, our anthrac nose preventative strategy should begin at this time and be very much in our minds during May. Mm, you're absolutely right. We're unlikely to see any anthracnose, but this is the period where we could do a lot to avoid it later in the year. And um, I think I'd like to take a little bit more time later in this podcast to go really into some depth about the stress mitigation and avoidance strategies that we could probably put in place through May to avoid it later in the year. Okay, so what about fairy ring? Do you think we're going to see any of that floating around this month? Well, highly likely, Glenn, I would say. Uh, with soil temperatures being ideal for my microbial activity, uh, fungal activity within the upper soil profile will be flourishing. And so we would expect to see all types of fairy ring activity emerge this month, uh, which might affect playing qualities of greens, but by the same token might cause uh, visual disfigurement across the course. Uh, there are certain types, of course, really, such as coastal or links, that can be really badly affected by fairy rings at this time. And so uh, the control or mitigation of fairy ring activity might actually be the top priority for for those types of settings. So yeah, yeah, it can we're likely to see some activity and it may be highly significant for the course managers. Yeah, I think May is a month where you're right, we could well see it, but I also think it is a month where we can have an um, impact on managing fairy ring. So I think we should take a bit of time later as well to look into that in some more depth, Henry. Mm. Um, so stepping away from the diseases, uh, what pest challenges do you think are on the horizon? Where do you think we'll be this month with leather jackets? Well, hopefully, Glenn, uh, leather jackets, uh, or the grub of the crane fly, um, uh, will have either hatched or will be becoming dormant, depending on the species and uh, its life cycle, to reduce the level of damage that is occurring at this time. Uh, we know that there will have been some seriously high populations that will have caused damage through March and April, and we hope that they're beginning to subside now and that the focus is more on generating recovery with nutrition potentially being used that have been in there on sites that have been badly affected or maybe overseeding and turfing. But hopefully the level of leather jacket activity and damage will be on the wane now and uh, will be on the road out. Last year on Pest Tracker, which is a, a kind of digital tool we use to get the greenkeeping industry to report back when they're seeing things fly and seeing cranefly hatch. We saw the, the spring hatch of cranefly around the first week of May. That's a pretty good indication that a decent percentage of the leather jacket population has now hatched and moved away from that soil area. The Palliodosa species will continue to stay in the soil, but they tend to go dormant and feed less. They will continue to feed a bit, they'll feed less. So we're reducing the plant, the population of them in there and they're feeding less. And so from a plant health point of view, if you've got a high leather jacket population, 
it will be reducing. And once we see that spring hatch, it's a pretty good indicator that we're moving in the right direction and you'll begin to get a break from it. But you're right, if we've done our monitoring through April, um, and I've spoken a lot on my blog and different ways about doing this, um, using one meter sheets to measure the population, we should have a pretty good idea about the challenges that lay ahead. The sheeting method seems to be coming more and more popular using a sort of heavy duty um, sheet or tarpaulin pegged over turf uh, overnight to keep that area sort of dark and moist in order to almost uh, trick the grubs uh, into coming up to the surface and and staying there by the morning uh, where we can kind of see them and count them and get a, a proper idea of the level of insta- infestation that might be in the soil because otherwise we just we just don't know what's lurking. I talk about this a lot, don't I? Um, Heavy-duty sheets, they're the key. You know, we're trying to kid the leather jacket into thinking it's still nighttime. If you can flood first, then you get even better results. Uh, and it needs to be mild. Um, I'm not talking large-scale sheets here for control. I'm talking specifically about smaller ones to get an understanding of the population. And um, and that can give you a really good clue as to when the time is to do some large-scale sheeting for grub control if you've got a problem. Now, mainly this is through April rather than May. Um, but this monitoring process gives us a really good idea of the numbers we've got. And if you're seeing really high levels of damage and high numbers, then you really should be putting strategies in place. Um, If you've got really high numbers, we're looking to ensure we grow some turf back and outgrow the damage that they are causing. And um, by the same token, we might be expecting to see some chafer beetle activity during May. Uh, The May bug, as it's known, uh, should be hatching during this time. So again, it's a time for monitoring and logging any sightings um, onto Pest Tracker to help us all. But monitoring monitoring for chafer beetles during May is particularly important because it it does really help guide the possible application of an insecticide such as a Celeprim if we do get that emergency authorization. So again, we do need to keep our eyes open, not only to gauge the level of infestation, but also to help achieve successful control in the future. Monitoring is actually everything when it comes to pest control, isn't it, Glenn? Yeah, it really is. Chafers don't move too far, do they? So having a good look around can give you a good guide for your applications later in the year. Okay, so we've had a good chat about leather jackets and chafers. What about worms? It's been a brutal winter for course manager and worms. Do you think maybe we'll see that turn the corner in May? Well, hopefully, Glenn. Um, This is the the biggest issue, isn't it, for a lot of golf courses during the during the autumn and winter and early spring period. But hopefully the courses will be drying out and growth, grass growth establishing and those areas affected by worm casting um, beginning to recover. But as we've already said, you know, wake May can be a wet month with particularly low temperatures at times. So we might not be out of the woods yet. We just have to wait and see. But to a large degree, there's, you know, our hands are tied with this one. Yeah, fingers crossed for a decent May and we are well and truly out of the woods by the time people hear this. Um, Now, moss, we're moving into better growing conditions. One of the challenges I think tends to get forgotten about in the growing season is moss. Is there anything we can do in May to help in that battle? 
Well, I, hopefully, again, the worst is over uh, when it comes to Moss, with the course recovering from those sort of autumn and winter deteriorations that might occur, such as moss, that sort of happen during periods of, of low growth. Moss is definitely one of those uh, agronomic indicators because it only really flourishes if it's allowed to. And if we maintain the conditions for healthy growth, it should be easy for the grass to be able to outcompete the moss at this time, it it might need some help uh, to see it off in terms of nutrition or scarification. And we may have even used uh, fertilizers containing sulfate of iron, you know, in those kind of spring starter type fertilizers during April to help discourage the moss, I suppose. And if we continue to maintain strong grass growth levels during this time, we should be seeing the back of moss by this period what about seed heads this is a critical one do you think we're going to see seed heads in may annual meadowgrass seed head production it's it's a biggie isn't it you know and as we've already discussed we can enter significant periods of stress during may which might actually be that first period of stress for the year and the response of annual meadowgrass or poa annua to this stress, be it uh, heat or drought or maybe even a desiccated wind, desiccating wind, is to produce those seed heads. It's simply the nature of the plant. Poa annua as a species is not well adapted to tolerate uh, environmental stress. And so the first sign of stress is natural response is to produce that seed in order to reproduce. And this proliferation of seed head production during May can really dis disrupt turf quality. And uh, it can be the ultimate kick in the teeth uh, to put it politely, for the course manager. Glenn, you must have experienced this in your career. How devastating or demoralising uh, can the annual Medigras seed head production be at this time? Yeah, it's a very frustrating period of the year and there's a few things we can do to manage those seed head challenges, but it's certainly disrupted some of my parting surfaces. Um, I think that's something I'd like to take a look at more depth later on in this podcast, just to look at those opportunities to manage this situation. But for me, it always just seemed to come when I thought I was turning that corner into great putting surfaces up, they would pop. It's a cruel business, greenkeeping. And also, actually, we, should, we shouldn't forget that there's, there is a real chance of dry patch developing at this time if we get caught off guard. So there's certainly plenty of risks during May, uh, depending on how the weather goes. And it is definitely a time of significant agronomic challenges yeah that dry patch can really sneak up on you because there's a good chance you're still getting some showers you've got cooler overnight temperatures we've already spoken about how you can still get a frost right into early june so you may well have some dry root zones but they're not immediately obvious like they would be in june and july they are in your face in june and july because of the overnight temperatures and the really long days but may they can sneak past you quicker than you think yeah, that's right. And I suppose that's the reason why we're here 
things do sneak up on you because you don't think the conditions are right for their development. The early dry patch as a result of dry weather, when you're not really expecting, is definitely one of those things that can be lurking just over the horizon. So it sounds to me, Henry, like we need a pretty decent look this month for anthracnos, fairy ring and seed head management strategies. So there's loads there to cover. I'm going to go make myself a cup of tea. Yes, and I really need a comfort break. Uh, Come back and join us in part two, where we'll take a look at those bits. (laughs) 